What do we want most in life? A survey asking this exact question was conducted in nations all over the world. What do you think the most common answer was? How does our definition of success shape how we live our daily lives? Join me, your host, Michael Bauman, as we create a life of success by exploring the cutting-edge research in happiness, motivation, psychology, philosophy, and more. Welcome to Thrive Culture Success Engineering. In almost every nation, from the United States to Greece to South Korea, Argentina, when they were asked what they want most in life, people put happiness at the top of their lists. Now, I don't think this would be surprising to most of us, but unfortunately, we don't often see people who are truly happy. The people that have actually taken the time to really define what happiness means to them and then subsequently aligned their time, their energy, their money to achieving that desired goal. And we also have a lot of myths around happiness. There are things that we think will make us happy. And in reality, most of the time, we are really bad judges at what actually makes us happy. So Brene Brown, in an interview with Tim Ferriss, was asked who she thought was successful, and she had this to say about it. She said, I don't picture anybody. I actually picture the word redefine. My answer is be clear that your ladder is leaning against the right building. So again, we think certain things like money and fame and recognition and achievement will make us happier. But what if we're actually placing our trust in a faulty foundation, one that doesn't really support us? Well, will those things actually support our long-term happiness? And this goes back to what we talked about in episode one and two, where I walked you through those exact questions to help redefine what the feeling of success means to you in those main areas of life. So if you haven't listened to those episodes yet, I would highly encourage you to go back and do that because success and happiness actually looks and feels different for every person on the planet. But we're led to believe that our success and happiness should look like everybody else's. I would argue that happiness and kind of included in that you have joy and peace and contentment really lies at the center or the crux of the feeling of success. We can't really have true success or the feeling of success without having a main component be happiness. And Herman Hess actually says, I believe what we lack is joy. The ardor that a heightened awareness imparts to life, the conception of life as a happy thing, as a festival, the high value put upon every minute of time, the idea of hurry, hurry as the most important objective of living is unquestionably the most dangerous enemy of joy. In nationally representative samples of the U.S., slightly more than half or about 54% are indicated that we're moderately mentally healthy, which is great. Don't think about the other half too much, but we're not flourishing. So we lack that enthusiasm or the vigor for life, or as Hess puts it, that heightened awareness, the conception of life as a happy thing. And Thich Nhat Han, I think I'm saying that right, don't really know, a Vietnamese monk, he's actually a world-renowned as a Zen master, a poet, and a peace activist. He says, when we feed and support our own happiness, we're nourishing our ability to love. That's why to love means to learn the art of nourishing our happiness. Now, this may sound counterintuitive, that to love others better, we actually have to nourish our own happiness. But as we shall discover in these episodes, the strategies and practices that are scientifically validated to increase our own happiness 
oftentimes involve or include a reciprocal improvement in the lives of the people around us as well. So it's important at this point to make the distinction between the pursuit of happiness and the creation or construction of happiness. While this may seem pedantic, it is a necessary clarification. So implied in the phrase pursuit of happiness is something external from ourselves that we're constantly having to chase and we have either arrived at or not. But this doesn't reflect the reality of what happiness truly is. Rumi, the 13th century Persian poet, says, lovely days don't come to you, you should walk to them. And this actually more accurately reflects the idea of the creation or construction of happiness. And this is actually the reason that I named this podcast Success Engineering, because it implies that there's work that needs to be done, but also that there are blueprints that we can follow to realize our success. And one of the best examples of these blueprints is found in Sonia Lubomirsky's book, The How of Happiness. So she's a professor at the Department of Psychology at the University of California, and she's been researching and studying what makes and sustains our happiness for decades. Her book is probably the most practical, scientifically validated look into what happiness truly is. And she kind of sums up the whole book in a nutshell by saying, the fountain of happiness can be found in how you behave, what you think, and what goals you set every day of your life. Now, while this may sound obvious, it actually isn't because overall we do a very poor job of judging what will actually make us happy. So we have these myths around happiness. The first one of those is that happiness must be found or that I, that pursuit of happiness idea. It's something outside of ourselves or the stars have to align, so to speak, for us to achieve it. And Sonia says, if you're not happy today, you won't be happy tomorrow unless you take things into your own hands and take action. It's not just going to come to you or align with you know circumstances. The second myth is we either have it or we don't. Now, we'll talk later on about there is a very strong genetic predisposition to happiness and a set point, but it only actually affects 50% of our happiness. So there are ways, a lot of different ways and strategies that we'll get into that we can actually affect what we can control in terms of improving our happiness. The third myth, and this is a very pervasive Uh, One is that happiness lies in changing our circumstances. And there's an interesting study done of 792 extremely wealthy individuals. So more than half of them reported that wealth didn't bring them more happiness. And a third of those with assets greater than $10 million said that money actually brought more problems than it solved. So those with higher income reported being somewhat more satisfied with their lives but it was only slightly greater than what office staff or blue-collar workers report. And the studies of how they actually spend their days find they don't actually spend their time in more enjoyable activities than their less prosperous peers. In fact, they're more likely to experience daily anxiety and anger. So it's interesting because we have this ideal in our mind. We think of, you know, that person who has their own private jet and, you know, they're maybe even a private island and they're just doing whatever they want all day. It's actually not really true. Most of the time they're spending their time and their energy maintaining or gaining more wealth or managing whatever system or business that they have to create wealth. And like it says here, they're, they're more likely to experience daily anxiety and anger 
which is interesting because, you know, we have this picture, but it doesn't match up with what reality actually is. And we see similar findings of that disconnect between people that invest a lot of time and money in their beauty and appearance. It doesn't actually correlate to their happiness. So we have positive events, whether they're, you know, promotions or clean bills of health, our vacations, the stuff that we get, whether we're rich or poor, healthy or unhealthy, beautiful or plain, it only accounts for, get this, 10% of our overall happiness. But where do we spend majority of our time? We spend our majority of our time in changing those circumstances or changing those situations or working towards a different outcome in that area but it's only 10%. So what what can we do differently? Well, first off, I want you to picture a pie. Maybe this is a beautiful pie that your grandma made. Maybe it's a pumpkin pie, maybe an apple pie. For me, it'd be a French silk pie. I love French silk pie. So we have this pie and let's say this represents, you know, the total amount of happiness in our life. 10% of that pie is affected from our circumstances and our life events, only 10%. Then we have 50% is actually a genetic set point. So there's a lot of research. There are a lot of studies comparing the happiness of identical twins with the happiness of fraternal twins in an effort to determine how much of our happiness is determined by our genetics. So it turns out it's right around that 50% mark. They call this your happiness set point. So with identical twins, they found if you wanted to predict the happiness of an identical twin, even after a decade of different life experiences, which include college, careers, relationship changes, marriages, moving, etc., you would actually do better to use the average happiness of their twin 10 years previous rather than attempting to determine the effect on their happiness of all their life circumstances. This, it's pretty incredible. So you could actually do more accurately determine their happiness through their twins' happiness 10 years ago before any of that stuff changed. And they didn't find this correlation with fraternal twins. And so then they did studies where they found identical twins that were actually raised apart. So you want to think the movie Parent Trap, if you've seen that. Now, this is a very difficult sample to find, but they were able to find some people, identical twins that were raised apart. So what was so interesting is they exhibited the same happiness level similarity, even though they were raised in entirely different environments. So they were basically equivalently happy, raised in entirely different environments. So the happiness level of fraternal twins raised separately was completely uncorrelated. So this shows this very strong genetic um, effect on our happiness. And they had a study that was done that tracked Australian citizens every two years from 1981 to 1987. And they found that the positive and negative life events, things like marriages, job changes, stressors, crises, affected the feelings of happiness and satisfaction in the typical way we would expect. But after these events had passed, the participants' happiness levels actually returned to their original baselines. And this typically occurred within three months. So this is known as hedonic adaptation. So we return to this set play, this set point in our happiness. You know, we might have these circumstances that bump up, bump us up above it, or you know, drop us down below it. But we'll tend to return to this set point. So it's called hedonic adaptation. So it's similar in concept to 
homeostatic regulation that our bodies perform on a second by second basis to keep us alive. So this is everything from how our bodies vary in blood pressure, nutrient and water levels, body temperature, heart rate reduction after exercise and stress. It's all done to keep us alive. So it's vitally important for our bodies to be able to respond and adapt to different stimuli. But in the area of happiness, this can kind of actually work against us. So there's been studies of lottery winners that showed that less than one year after winning the lottery, they reported being no happier than regular people that hadn't suddenly come into a bunch of money. But again, in our minds, we think, oh, if I won the lottery, I'd be incredibly happy. Science actually says that that's not the case. We have this hedonic adaptation. We return to our baseline of what we were before. And there was a massive study done on 25,000 people in Germany who were surveyed every year for 15 years. And out of those 25,000 people, 1,761 people, they got married and they stayed married. When their happiness levels were examined, it was shown that marriage produced a boost in happiness that lasted about two years before the participants returned to their happiness baselines that they were before marriage. But marriage is another one of those things that we think, oh, if I get married, you know, then that will just change everything. I'll be happy. Well, you will for a little while, but then you'll return to your baseline, what you, what you were before it. So Sonia says, if we can accept as true that life circumstances are not the key to happiness, we will be greatly empowered to pursue happiness for ourselves. And the best place to actually help yourself be happier is not in our genetic makeup, obviously, which we can't control, or even those circumstances, which we want to control, but only make up 10% of the difference, but in our daily intentional activities. This is the main area that you can actually help yourself be happier and sustain happiness for a longer period of time. So this is that remaining 40% of that lovely happiness pie that we're picturing. So this is within our direct control and should be where our main focus is. So Sonia says, all of us could be a great deal happier if we scrutinize carefully what precise behaviors and thoughts very happy people naturally and habitually engage in. And some of the things that she found is one, they devote a great deal of time to family and friends and relationships, like the Harvard study of adult development in episode six. Second one, gratitude. Third one, they help actively help others and look for ways to help others. Number four, they're practicing optimism, so thinking positively. Uh, Number five, they're savoring individual moments and pleasures. Six, they have some aspect of physical exercise on a weekly or daily practice level. Number seven, they're committed to pursuit of goals. Number eight, they have effective coping skills that help them through tragedies and crises and stress. And it's interesting, when you compare those things with the Harvard study of adult development, then they found those five main factors that predicted healthy aging. So number one was physical activity. Number two, absence of alcohol abuse and smoking. Number three, having mature mechanisms to cope with life's up and downs. Number four, enjoying a healthy weight. And number five, stable marriage, friendships, or community and social ties. You'll see a massive amount of overlap between those two. These are the things that actually help us be healthy and help us be happy. So these are where we should actually focus most of our time. And Sonia says, you know, creating or constructing happiness, it takes work. But consider that this happiness work may be the most rewarding work you will ever do. 
Remember, this is something that we all kind of say we want. We want to be happy. But what are we doing, willing to do to work towards that? And I'm going to actually give you the exact strategies she found in her research, tons of research that she's done that can help us with these daily intentional activities to help us be happier. So while happiness is all well and good, what actual benefit does it have on our life? Like how does it actually impact us? Well, the research is really clear on this. It helps us be more social, more energetic. Happy people are more charitable. They're more cooperative. They're better liked by other people. They're more likely to get married, stay married. They have a richer network of friends and social support. They're more flexible and they have more flexibility in their thinking. They're more productive in their jobs. They're better leaders, negotiators. They earn more money. They're more resilient when faced with hardship. They have stronger immune systems and they're physically healthier and live longer. It's quite a list. And this is what's called a positive feedback loop. So it's difficult sometimes to tell whether happiness helps us with these things or vice versa. But what we do know is these things all feed on each other to increase our overall well-being of our life or you know, our success, if we want to put it that way. So a couple studies among many that were done to support this, there was a study done that looked at the happiness levels of college freshmen. And if they were happy as college freshmen, they actually had higher incomes 16 years later without an initial wealth advantage. And then women who expressed sincere joy in their college yearbook photos were relatively more likely to be married by age 27 and more likely to have satisfying marriages at age 52, which is pretty incredible. Our happiness definition is essentially an experience of joy, contentment, positive well-being, combined with sense that one's life is good, meaningful, and worthwhile. So we see all of those fundamental values that we talk about in our definition of success. We have joy, we have peace, you know, we have love, and then we have that aspect of spiritual or purpose. You know, we have meaningful and worthwhile life. So in this, you know, in our in our goal of constructing happiness in our life, We want to start by getting a baseline so we can see where we are with that baseline. What's that set point? So she has the subjective happiness scale. So the first question, and you rate yourself on a scale of one to seven. So the first question is, in general, I consider myself one is not a very happy person and seven is a very happy person. Number two, compared with most of my peers, I consider myself one less happy and seven, more happy. Three, some people are generally very happy. They enjoy life regardless of what's going on, getting the most out of everything. To what extent does this characterization describe you? One is not at all. Seven's a great deal. And then number four, some people are generally not very happy. Although they're not depressed, they never seem as happy as they might be. To what extent does this characterization describe you? One's a great deal, and seven's not at all. And then take the average of that. So add up all four of those numbers and divide by four. The average level of happiness is 5.6. So essentially, if you're below 5.6, then you're less happy than the average person. And if you're above 5.6, you're happier than the average person. And on a side note, she also includes a scale created by the Center for Epidemiological Studies to find out whether you may have depression. And I'm going to put the link to this scale in the show notes as it could be helpful for some of you. Now, Sonia also has a whole section at the end of this book dedicated to this with the top research validated treatments that have been proven to help. Um, There's four. 
One is pharmacological support, so antidepressants and meds. Second one's cognitive behavioral therapy. Third one's interpersonal therapy, so teaching the skills actually to maintain interpersonal relationships. And marriage and family therapy. Definitely check that out if this is something that you struggle with or is a challenge for you and look into getting the help that you would need. So oftentimes a combination of multiple therapies can be effective in shifting our thinking patterns and mindsets and provide the necessary social skills we need to actually improve in the areas of life that may be contributing to the depression. So just like you'd receive treatment if you were sick or hurt, there's no shame in receiving treatment for depression to help you live a more full and happy life. And I would recommend checking out some of those therapies. In her book, Sonia actually lays out 12 strategies that are research validated to help improve our happiness. But the reality is these are all unique to the individual. Different strategies work better for different people. And Sonia says there's no one magic strategy that will help every person become happier. All of us have unique needs and interests, values, resources, and inclinations that undoubtedly predispose us to put effort into and benefit from some strategies more than others. And so she lays out three ways that we can choose which one would be a good fit for us. The first way is to kind of fit it with our weakness. So if you know there's a specific thing or deficiency that's a main area of your unhappiness, you can, you can cater your happiness strategy towards improving in that area. And the second way is you actually fit it with your strengths. And this, you know, again, is kind of correlated with the tiny habits. We change by feeling good. So we can we can say, I'm really good in this area, and I want to cater my happiness strategies towards improving that area even more. Then the third way that we can fit it with our um, life is actually into our lifestyle. So it's the ones that you know you can be more consistent with. So again, it's that BJ Fogg's, you know, tiny habits recipe. You know, you can say, after I do this, I can implement this new habit and then celebrate that. Now, if you want a more specific assessment that I can actually tell you, these are your top four strategies based on your life. I'm going to put the link to her person activity fit diagnostic assessment in the show notes. And that can that can help give you those top four that you can start with. You're, you're welcome to do more than that, but it gives you a good baseline or launching off point. So by now, you're probably wanting to know what these 12 strategies are that can actually make you happier. Well, I guess you'll just have to listen to the next episode. Gotcha. In all seriousness, while I didn't intentionally start out meaning to make you wait and kind of dangle those strategies over your head, though it is kind of funny, I also didn't want to rush through this information as this can be some of the most practical and valuable information for creating happiness in our life. And I wanted to make sure that you had kind of the why behind it and how it can actually benefit us. So in summary, while all over the world, one of the most common responses to what we want out of our life is to be happy, we're actually very bad at judging what makes us happy. And so our circumstances only account for that 10% of our overall happiness. While we do have to take into account that 50% of our happiness is determined by our genetic you know, happiness set point, as seen in those identical twin studies, it's far more valuable to direct our focus and energy on the 40% of our happiness that we can directly control through these 12 happiness strategies that I'm going to lay out for you in the next episode. I hope to see you back for another episode of Thrive Culture Success Engineering with your host, Michael Bauman. If you enjoyed this show, it would mean a lot to me if you left a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help people find the show. 
Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.